I think it has to do with like, have you got your gifts? Have you got your groceries? Have you shopped? And giving gifts can be fun. Uh, we can we enjoy it. It's nice, but there's also this real sense of like it's hectic. And there can be some stress, and you're running around, and there are these expectations. So it can also be unfun. So why do we do it? Why do we kind of enter this sort of uh, hamster wheel of getting ready, so to speak? I mean, and I'm asking now also like followers of Jesus, why do you do this? If someone were to ask you, why are you running around to stores and buying gifts and getting all and feeling stressed and feeling worried and have you got this and got that? If someone were to ask you, would you have uh, an answer for them? You might say, well, I don't know, uh, Santa Claus. Uh, well, it's what we do. It's tradition. It's because um, somebody's giving stuff to me because we put up a tree, so we have to put stuff under it. Um, and it's interesting to me. I'm just, okay, I'm just ranting here a minute. Bear with me. But when you return after the Christmas break, when you return to school or you return to work, what is something they're going to ask you? What? How was your Christmas? What? All right. What? What did you get for Christmas? So there's all this like peer pressure. In fact, if you don't like give stuff, then it's almost like you feel a little awkward if you said, well, I spent time with my family. What did you get for Christmas? And you're kind of like, oh, it's kind of, oh. So let me broaden this question for us this morning. What actually governs the way we live? What governs the way you live? What influences and determines how you go about the way you live? And it's especially important at this particular season where there is a heightened sense of influence and pressure from the media, from commercialism, from peers to shape and influence the way we conduct our lives, as especially during what we call Advent or Christmas. What governs, what determines how we actually conduct our lives? Well, two guys, uh, Nathan and David, they were kicking back after being quite pumped about some activity. They were in a celebratory mood. And yes, I'm talking about David, who was uh, a shepherd and musician who became king of Israel from 1010 BC to 970 BC, approximately. King David. Now, he was the king of Israel, and they had the, this arch nemesis of theirs were the Philistines. And the Philistines, in their battle thievery, had made off with something called the Ark of the Covenant. And if you know, we are in this series during Advent called the Covenant Series, where we're learning about the different covenants and how Advent and Christmas sits in the context of the covenants that God makes, the agreements or promises. So the Philistines had made off with this Ark of the Covenant. Sometimes it was referred to as the testimony. 
It was a chest-like box that was constructed to hold the Ten Commandments or the Book of the Covenant. It was contained in there and it was meant for Israel to have a visible representation of the invisible God and particularly the covenants or the agreement to the promises that he had made. And the cover of this Ark of the Covenant was made of gold. And there were two seraphim like angels above it. And that was called the mercy seat, which in Hebrew means a tome. The cover was called the mercy seat, which in Hebrew means a tome. It was like a throne between two cherubims. This Ark of the Covenant. Well, the reason Nathan and David were in a celebratory mood is because they had been able to retrieve and recover and bring back this testimony, this Ark of the Covenant, back to Israel. And so King David was in a celebratory and a gift-giving mood. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God which is another phrase for the Ark of the Covenant or the Testament. But see, now the Ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David wants to build God a house. Now I get the sentiment, it's kind of like he wants to honor, he wants to be generous, he's in a bit of a gift-giving mood, but at the same time he's kind of getting ahead of himself, as though now through the favor that they are experiencing, he's going to build God a house. Let me build you a house. So we continue. The Lord is speaking to Nathan here. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David. And I just want to pause here. The Lord is speaking to Nathan in response here. And what God is saying is now notice that David is like, you know what God, I want to build a house for you. Um, I'm in a house. We need to build you a house. And God says, all right, since you brought it up, Nathan, here's what I want you to tell King David. Here's the message for David. 
Now therefore, this is starting in verse 8 and 9. Now therefore, thus shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Just pause there. The message that God is giving Nathan, the message that he is conveying to David is that I am with you. The message is God is saying, I don't need a house. People need a house. I, God's place, Yahweh Elohim's place is with people. Yahweh Elohim's place is with the people. Wherever the people of God are, there is Yahweh Elohim. So He is here with us right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is here with us right now. Yahweh Elohim by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't need a house. Humans need a house. Thank you very much. In fact, you may feel at times lonely. Maybe even especially during this Christmas season. And it's legitimate, you feel lonely. But I want to tell you that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you are never really alone. The Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is near. In fact, it's part of His name. Matthew records in Matthew 1.23 this phrase that we repeat almost without noticing. This verse in Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall name him Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. So I want you to track what's going on here. Nathan feels compelled, or rather David feels compelled to build God a house. And God says, I don't need a house. I am with you. That's who I am. And so since you brought it up, let's talk about this further. So let's continue then in verse 9 and onward, 9 to 16. I have been with you forever, wherever you went. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with the rod such as mortals use. 
with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is the longest recorded divine monologue since God spoke to Moses. And here we have another agreement or divine promise or covenant that God is making to David and through David. He's continuing these arrangements, these agreements that he made with Abraham and then Moses and now David. The first aspect that he is saying is, I will provide you with a place. I will provide Israel. I will provide the people of God with a place. I will do that. A place. Then he says, I will create a special community. He uses the word kingdom. And uh, Slater, if you have those uh, words up on the screen there, I will create a special community or kingdom. And I will also then create, he says, house. But that word house means dynasty. It means an ancestral establishment, a dynasty, a house or a dynasty. And I will provide a ruler or a king. This is what I am going to do for you. This is what I will provide. This king will have complete authority and will establish a level of peace that is permanent. And this will not be accomplished by David. It will be done by Yahweh Elohim and it will be done through David's son, through his ancestry. And I think we need to pause here to acknowledge, friends, especially in this time when we're thinking about giving and gifts and so on, we need to start with the real, real and right understanding that God is the creator, God is the giver, God is the provider. He's the one that says, I will do this for you. I'm going to create this for you. I'm going to establish this for you. Your house, your dynasty, your kingdom, your thrones, God's actions are what they would call benevolent. They are for the benefit and the blessing of people. It comes out of Him, and that is why in the New Testament they interchange love and Jesus Christ or God because it is through this expression of love that He is doing this for the benefit of all people. And when we put these two ideas together, the idea that Yahweh Elohim, our God, is present with us and that He desires to bless and provide for us, we begin to understand what is called this Davidic covenant or this promise or agreement that He is making with David and through David. That here, Yahweh Elohim is making an agreement that He is going to provide for the people of God a king and a kingdom. He's going to provide a king, a ruler who is present, and a particular unique special community called a kingdom. 
Well, if you know some of your history, you know that subsequently to all of this, David had a son whose name was Solomon. And Solomon went about building a temple for God in 969 to 959 BC approximately, he built a temple. And Solomon was recorded as being one of the wisest men to ever have lived. And he was doing well, and it seemed like uh, all things were coming to fruition according to what God was saying. David's son was a king, he was building this temple, and he had peace for, uh, on his borders, and they were flourishing. That is all until Solomon's desires got the better of him. In fact, have you ever stopped and pondered and paused to wonder why he had peace on all his borders? What was the cost of the peace? What was the cost of the peace that he had? He succumbed to his desires, which were essentially um, women. And he liked them a lot, and he liked a lot of them. And so he indulged with women from all these different countries and all these different cults and all these different religions. And if you want to rummage around to find out the statistics, whether it is like precise or whether there's some hyperbole, the point is that there's, he's said to have had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And I don't know if you do the math, the number of days in the year, But it's off the hook. And the problem not only, and, and guys, like I could do a separate sermon on Solomon and his difficulty. But I, because we've got the kids in the service here. So lucky you. You can save it for Q&R. I hear you. So it comes off the hook. As it turns out, God, Solomon built a temple for the Lord, and then he relegated the Lord to his room. And got all adulterous. So then the question is, when God made this agreement and this covenant with David, like was it just a, a short-sighted agreement? Was it a, a covenant with an expiration date? Is there more going on? 900 years from the time of making that covenant. I mean, and how could it be, there'd be an expiry date when God, Yahweh Elohim is using words like forever and eternal. He's using these words in there. So I want you to notice that 900 years from when God spoke to David through Nathan, 900 years later, the Gospel writer Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew written particularly to the Hebrew audience. Notice what it says in Matthew 1 verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 1 verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. 
Matthew, from verse 1, is making a connection between this person that he's going to talk about and David and Abraham. He's making a connection to the agreements, the covenants that God has made. Let's go to Luke. See, these are verses and passages that we read at Christmas. But now we're beginning to unpack the context. Luke, verse 1, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, that is to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the house maker, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3. Jesus is the one who has the eternal throne. Jesus is the predestined one. Jesus is the elected one. Chosen by Yahweh Elohim. Determined ahead of time by Yahweh Elohim. It is Jesus. And his destiny, Jesus' destiny is not only the manger. His destiny is not even the cross. The place for Jesus is the throne of God. It is the throne. And so these gospel writers are making it clear when they are speaking of Jesus, they're making it clear, that's my king. That's my king. When Jesus departs at the end of Matthew, so Matthew 1 verse 1, at the end of Matthew 28 verse 18, again, these very sort of famous, popular, familiar verses. But in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus appears to the disciples. He's with them before he ascends to heaven. And he says this to his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is king. In fact, this, is, this has been the problem when Jesus was on earth. All the rage against Jesus culminated with the idea that Jesus was a king. That was ultimately the problem for people, and especially for rulers, and especially those who wanted to be kings. And so they would ask him, are you a king? Are you the king? Are you the one? So if they had a historical perspective, they were saying, like, are you the one that God has promised? And if they didn't have a historical perspective, if, if they were coming from a Greek or Roman or background, they were saying, well, are you the king? And eventually they started uh, uh, charging him. They charged him for being and claiming to be king. And when they was on the cross, they jeered him for being a king. Because that's actually precisely who he is. 
what he is. He is the ruler. This is what God is declaring. Promulgating from hundreds and thousands of years ago. This is God's idea. That he would establish a king to rule and be among and establish a particular special kind of community. This is God's choice. It is God's idea. And the gospel writers believed that king was Jesus. And Jesus believed that he was that king. And the apostle Paul, the writer, believed that he was that king. And they all said, that's my king. That's my king. That's my king. So from the outset, the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made an agreement amongst themselves that they would create human beings in all creation, everything that we see. They made this agreement. And they understood, as we are tracking here through this covenant series, they also understood that as soon as they did that, humans would be other than perfect and things would go awry. And so the next covenant was that some descended from Eve would finally defeat Satan. A descendant of Eve would de de defeat Satan. And that that person, that person would come through the line of Abraham. And that person would come through the line of Abraham. And that person would sit on the throne of David through David's ancestry. That person would be born in Bethlehem. And that person would be named Emmanuel. It's Jesus. All through... It's Jesus. Friends, when we read about the agreements or the covenant that God is making about a land, about a special community, about a, a king, all of those are real, tangible, existential aspects of reality. This land is a sign for the new earth and the new heaven. This land is a sign for the eventual land we will live in. The church community that exists on earth now is meant to be a sign of the kingdom and the, the community of the kingdom. We are meant to be a sign of the reality of the kingdom that will yet come. And when we remember and we take time during Christmas and Advent, Advent meeting coming or waiting, we are remembering and recalling that He came and He ascended, but He will come again and it's another sign. When you are out driving and you see a sign that says there's a bump in the road or a corner, that sign is real, but it also points to the real corner. So all of this is pointing to an existential reality that we will experience, that Jesus is King. When we talk about thrones, when we talk about crowns, those two are signs and symbols of a ruler. King or a ruler. Prime Minister or President doesn't cover it. Because they come and go. An eternal king or a ruler whose domain is everything, all domain, 
The question then is, if we arrive at this point where this community is a reality, this new land is a reality, this king is a reality, and he's reigning right now already, then the question becomes, what is ruling our lives? What is ruling our lives? What is the ruler of our life? Is it fear? Is it greed? Is it ambition? What rules, what determines what we do and how we conduct ourselves? And is our family, is our life and our church community a pointer to that special community? And also, what who has authority in our life? Who are you listening to to determine and persuade in how you will live? Are you on YouTube? Are you on Insta? Are you, are you watching news? Are you listening to theories by people you don't even know? Who has authority to speak into your life? And I am extremely old school in this, but a reason I encourage us to memorize scripture is every time you put this in, you are allowing the word of God to influence and shape and have authority in your life. Have scripture be authoritative in your life. Open yourselves up to the Holy Spirit to be authoritative in your life. And if people call you weird, say praise the Lord. Yeah. When you look at the manger, what do you see? When you see King, when you see King Jesus, when you look at the manger, can you say, that's my King? I'm not going to get it perfect. I'm not going to get it right. I'm going to try. And the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's going to forgive. But I just want to make one commitment today, one commitment this morning. And that is that I want to live where Jesus is king of my life. Because what we're talking about is real. It's not just philosophical. Well, that's all I want to do. I just want to say yes. I just, I just want Jesus to be king. And aligning my life to Jesus. I was talking with Andre Sibomano when we were in Rwanda. We were making a trip back to Kigali, the capital. Kimberly and I were in there with Andre. Andre's a preacher, I'm a preacher. And we got onto this whole discussion about Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Andre and I started really riffing on this reality when Jesus said, I am the way. And it got a little loud and passionate. Apparently, Andre talks loud too. <laughs> but we just kept repeating, Jesus is the way. My brother in Rwanda and I were just like, Jesus is the way. Listen to me, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. I mean, lock it in for a second. What is that even? There's so much going on there. He is the way. He's the way I live. He's the way I conduct my life. He's the way to eternal life. Jesus is the way. This was God's choice. I want to invite the music team to come up here. And when we go to QNR, I forget. Jesus is God's choice as king. 
So now I want to leave you with some questions. Since we don't have Q&R till January, my question is, Jesus is God's choices king. What is your choice? What will be your choice? And how will you demonstrate that choice? What happens when God is king?